Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> This is Daniel Foytek, and welcome to episode number 809 of the Wicked Library. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to all of our ongoing supporters. Without your support, this show would not be possible. If you enjoy the show and you want to help us keep making it, you should support us on Patreon or at thewickedlibrary.com. Not only do all our supporters get a completely ad-free show, we also get you the highest quality version of the show with the highest bit rate, so you can hear the wickedness that much better. You also get access to our first five seasons, bookmarks, and depending upon your level of support, you'll get to hear our bonus stories before the free listeners. And if you're a $10 month supporter or above, you get access to our brand new show, The Private Collector. Our newest episode comes out in just a few days. So if you're interested in becoming a private collector yourself, there's still time to do that. We're working very hard this season to make the show sustainable for season nine and beyond, and we do need your help to do that. Of course, a big thank you to those who took the time to rate and review the show five stars. That helps other people find the show. And of course, we love to hear from you. If you enjoy the stories you hear, please find the work of the authors and buy their work. It helps them keep making more. Now, today's episode features a wickedly strange and horrifying story by Madeline Swan. Bringing the story to life are Mary Murphy, Andy James, Amber Collins, and this guy. Our custom score is from our friend Nico at We Talk of Dreams. So without further ado, let's get wicked. Warning. If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on. It's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead, try it. You're not going to like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. (laughs) And that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. While you can, your librarian has taken such good care of you for seven seasons. I see no need to lighten up for season eight. Hold on to your breath, kiddies. It might just be your last. Once again, it's story time at the Wicked Library.
Suckle His Poison by Madeline Swan. When I returned from dealing with my client's affairs, I never once imagined my wife would be missing. It was the dead of night, not a time a woman would be out and about by herself. The gas lamps had been lit many an hour ago, and London was in the grip of an almighty fog. I had not dared to walk home in such conditions and took a handsome cab from the station, though I should have taken a growler as I was thoroughly covered in mud from the beast's hooves by the time I arrived in Islington. My wife has no family or friends to speak of that she could have been staying with, and we have been at our home less than a year. It was a point of much contention between us that she would never even give the local embroidery circle a chance, denouncing Mrs. Lipton and the others as silly old baggages. I ran up and down the stairs of our terraced house, searching each wardrobe and beneath each bed, but nothing. I sent Hetty for the constable at once and waited, pacing from the chase lounge to the chest of drawers until he arrived. He set to asking a number of ridiculous questions, such as whether she could have embarked on a late-night venture. I assured him we were not the sort of people who engaged in such nonsense, and held up his hands. I have to ask these questions, sir. Forgive me. Could you describe her? Fair hair, dark eyes, a most handsome woman. I didn't care that I had tears in my eyes. You said you work as a solicitor, did you not? Indeed I did. May I inquire as to the lateness of your arrival back at your abode? You may. I was sent to Cornwall to deal with a former client's affairs after her passing. I could not bear another night in that hovel they called a boarding house, so I returned on the train as soon as I finished. Very good, sir. Now, could anyone have taken issue with the young lady, perhaps? Taken issue? Before he could answer, there came a shriek from the study. Sir! Sir! We were by Hetty's side at once, surrounded by volumes on history and mathematics. She's left a letter. Hetty picked up a scribbled page on my desk. Oh my! Letters? She corrected herself when the rest of the missive fluttered to the carpet. Awful long. Well, we'd best read it then, he said, and my hand shook, knowing somehow that it was not something I should wish him to read. I followed meek as a lamb, however, wanting nothing but to find Clara. I dismissed Hetty and the constable, and I crowded about the pages and proceeded to read the most monstrous tale since the printing of the penny dreadful. Dear Bertie, this letter is to you in the hopes that you will try to understand what has befallen me. In truth, I have loved you many a year, long before you made your intentions known to my father. He tried to talk me out of it, but I was adamant. My parents were free thinkers. That phrase you would utter with such disdain, you would say, you have always been rather, as I say, stuffy, but it only made me love you all the more. I only say this to impress upon you that none of this was done in the rebellion of our life amongst the terraced houses and quiet streets, but simply the actions of a woman whose mind could not be quieted. I would kiss you of a morning before you left for the office, and think myself so lucky. I would set about instructing our maid on her daily tasks, and perhaps catch up on correspondence or visit the local shops, or maybe even take a cab and head for the heart of the city. Here I must confess 
I bought books of which she would not approve, which our doctor would ascertain was the cause of my hysteria. It was not hysteria, though, Bertie, merely ennui. They weren't disreputable books, simply ones pertaining to knowledge. Those books came later. After several months, I felt less pride in seeing a day's work completed. I began to feel that Hetty disapproved of the time I spent in the study and closed the door against her. That's when I found you all supply in the drawer, Bertie. For the next few weeks, I was satisfied with sneaking down to that little room after charging Hetty with her daily duties. Beginning with sweet Fanny Hill and ending with the Marquis de Sade and a modern text in between called the Bagno Miscellany. But soon this, too, was not enough. One day I found myself suffering particularly painful monthlies. I could not bear to explain my predicament to Hetty, so I made my way to the local druggist. Upon entering, I was overwhelmed by different cures. Peter Cook's cure for colic, Pepper's pills for pale people, ceramic bottles for baby feeding, mother's quieting syrup, laudanum and bath salts. The chemist asked what ailed me, but before I could reply, pain racked through my body, and I clutched at the afflicted area. They should do the trick. He turned to the shelves in the middle, picking out a small box. I read over the tin of pills for the relief of women, and saw it contained opium, and rushed home to read my secret copy of Thomas de Quincey while the tablets took effect. That week I went to an opera in Covent Garden, and the Grand Guignol on Waterloo Road. I had no care for the shocked glances and whispered titters of my fellow theatre-goers at seeing a woman alone and I'm afraid it may have rather done for your reputation. I'm sorry for that, my love. At the time, though, I cared nothing, save for the art before me, and the way those delicious pills enhanced its effect, glorious or grotesque. Heaven knows what they would have thought of the knife I kept in my purse for safety. It was in the shopping arcade in Mall that they stopped having the same effect. And I set off in a cab looking for something, anything, to dim my thoughts. I enjoyed greatly the famous holiday atmosphere of the Strand, though horse and cart still trotted along the vast road. The way was not clogged, and people didn't rush to and fro, but rather strolled as if on a promenade. Shoeblacks waited in the wings, along with the baked potato men and vendors of fried fish, sheep's trotters, and penny pies, whose wares awoke my stomach. I visited St. Clement Dane's Church, which, with its singular tower, made me think of you. In time I grew weary and wandered on, accidentally heading in the wrong direction. I found myself in a filthy, narrow street with overhanging shop fronts. Some sold second-hand rags, but most windows displayed material lower than could be found in Paris. The sign said Hollywell Street. Staring from prints, 
were nude ballet dancers raising a leg into the air. Women in various states of undress. Women skewered atop a gentleman's pole. And, in many variations, women with other women. Beside those were volumes of equal distaste. Mistress Mary's water domination. The rise and rise of Lady Pokington and more. Never had I seen such shamelessness. And never had I been so fascinated. Boy! I turned to see three men with several missing teeth. One made to grab my throat, but, without a conscious thought, I pulled the knife from my purse and held it to his. A few startled onlookers scurried into the alleyways. Better listen to the lady, said a voice from behind, and they oozed back into the darkness, shooting me looks of fury. You'd better come in, said the shopkeep. He was tall and lean, scholarly in appearance, with a wiry grey beard and mutton chops. Neatly dressed with a waistcoat and watch chain. I trust you have taken a wrong turn, madam, he said, more a statement than question. Though he eyed the knife I placed back in my bag with interest. He pulled a match from the box, and a pipe from the nearby desk, sucking in and exhuming great clouds. I surveyed his wares and was not disappointed. Inside were tomes just as vile, along with rude shadow puppets, and what looked to be instruments of torture. No, I said. I don't believe I have. His eyebrows raised in surprise. In fact, I said, enjoying the reaction I provoked. I should much like to know of any nearby opium dens, and perhaps a volume or two to take home. At this he spluttered. Madam, I I caught him again, checking the gold band on my finger and my pretty bonnet and skirts. And suddenly he roared with laughter for some minutes. Very well, I ejaculated. I see I have entered the wrong establishment. I will make my presence known elsewhere. No. He reached out to me. Please, I did not mean to offend. I allowed myself to be drawn back, where he met me with a wandering expression. I was merely surprised to meet one such as yourself. However, may I suggest an opium den is not the thing to do. I folded my arms. I hardly think Sir is in the position to be haughty, considering... You misunderstand me. I have frequented many an opium den, and they are often the same. Rooms owned by Chinamen, filled with mattresses where people lie like gargoyles, twisted in broken thoughts and pipe dreams. It can be amusing if one is in the mood for slumming, but when something better, something more delicious, is on offer, why not take that? All I ask in return is a farthing. Here I fancy I took a step back. It was the first time I felt afraid. What was he offering? Was it himself? He noticed my reticence and pressed to assure me. Payment is not required until after. I own a shop not far from here. 
If we make our way there, you will find a mixed company of both men and women. I can see you are a respectable lady. Here I accepted his flattery, though didn't allow it to turn my head. And I would not allow you to be molested in any way. I am known as Matson. Pertie, what should I have done? I know what you would say. Tell the filthy beast I would have none of it, and find the nearest cab. But I couldn't. Here was something before me, at last, that would excite me truly. I, of course, didn't trust the gentleman, but at that moment I didn't care a fig. I reasoned the knife would be all that was needed. How wrong I was. I followed him to the alternative establishment, waiting patiently while he locked the door of the first, then followed him through pickpockets and roguish men about town, all of whom cast shocked glances in my direction. When we alighted at the door, he ushered me up the stairs where I was met with a photography studio in full session. The curtains were drawn, the place lit only by red glowing kerosene lamps. A dark-haired girl sat on a wooden stool with her legs spread. She appeared to have done it many times before, resting her head to the side with barely a wrinkled brow, whilst the photographer captured her with camera atop tripod. To the side, by the window, was a fetching oak table and chair set, and here Matson bid me sit. We'll wait for the show to be over. Nancy will be joining us afterwards, he offered by way of explanation, then left me to watch while he went downstairs. By now the anticipation made my hands sweat, and, to my horror, I emitted several dry heaves from fear, though thankfully no one appeared to notice. Presently they finished, and Nancy and he shared a joke, and I felt at once out of place. Matson alighted at the top of the stairs and, once the girl was dressed, pressed a shilling into her hand. The pair joined me about the table. The maid is fetching tea, but without further ado, I think we shall begin proceedings. First, Mrs. H. He turned to me, as this is what I had called myself. Please oblige me by tapping on that wall. I did as he said and wrapped twice above a little black scorch mark, evidently from a wayward lamp, though I couldn't help feeling a little foolish. There. You see? It is perfectly solid and robust. Had I been lured to a magic show? Please remember, he said once I resumed my seat, do not converse with the subjects, and follow the lead on when to begin and when to stop. Again, I felt queasy but smiled and nodded. Matson opened a back door to the studio and led four sullen gentlemen in somber dress, their skin pallid, to the table, one beside each of us. Who or what they were, I do not know. Appallingly, they unbuttoned their shirts. Do not look so worried. Matson smiled. It is merely part of the process. I attempted relaxation, breathing as slowly as I could. The maid appeared, 
placing a tray with cups, saucers, teapot, and small bottle of laudanum in the centre of our not-so-merry group. She feathered my sense of displacement, casting a disproving eye over each of us. For a moment, I swore myself as she did. Shameful. And wished to do her violence for removing me so far from intended happiness. All was forgotten the instant she had gone, however. When Matson lowered his lips to the nearest sad-looking man and proceeded to suckle at his teat. Vomit rose in my throat. I turned to see the photographer and his subject doing the same thing to their men, and I stood abruptly. Matson removed his lips from the disgusting nipple, now distended and oozing with foul yellow pus. Drink the precious beverage. You will not regret it. I should have seen it for the horror it was, but instead took my seat once more. The miserable-looking man beside me stuck his chest in my direction. If he was allowing it, then it tasted not at all how it looked, but was sweeter than the ripest fruit. I worried I would train the poor beast to nothing. But he pulled away of his own accord. Matson ordered the creatures away and poured the tea, including the splash of laudanum. And I wondered what was to become of me. However, it was not the sick anxiety I had felt only moments ago, but a gentle curiosity. We drank and talked and I found I could converse more than expected with the lowly artist model, as she referred to herself, though she was no doubt a dolly mop also. Suddenly, I felt as though darkness had drawn about us, leaving us in a small pocket of light. Matson bid me turn to face the same white wall I had knocked against moments ago, and I was rendered speechless. An oval scene of a park lay in the very wall itself, but it was not a painting, as the little figures were moving about, and it did not seem to be a trick. How? I whispered, though in truth I did not wish to know. Rather, I enjoyed watching the little girls play with skipping ropes or on swings, while the boys played marbles or spinning tops. The adults watched, strolled in small groups, or read books while a vendor sold ice creams and lollipops. A river flowed through the proceedings, and how I wished to bathe in it. I almost felt the cool water around my flesh, and the breeze in my hair. My corset no longer quickened my breath, and I wanted to run and run, and run. Suddenly it was over. All I felt now was the dullness of the laudanum, which prevented my pining openly for my previous state, though pine I did. Now my corset fairly squeezed the life from me, and the shabbiness of the room became clear. Where was this park? 
Was it a real place I could visit? Now, Mrs. H. Matson, ruddy-cheeked as a schoolboy, was at my side offering a small package tied with string. I have some calming pills to assist you through the night, but I am certain you will return. My request is that you stave off this need for as long as possible. Here the photographer lowered his eyes. It is a delicacy, not meant to be supped too often. I left immediately after paying his money and accepting his gift. The very proximity of the gathering to me now was abhorrent. For a week I was much recovered, and reframed the incident as one does an unusual photograph, choosing to remember the intensity as lively experience instead of insidious trauma. In my dreams, shadowy figures danced. At times, definitely people, but other times the limbs elongated into something stranger. My squeamishness of Hollywell Street didn't last long. Matson seemed pleased to encounter me, and I was ushered to his sister's shop, leaving a stout woman with her suit chin in his place. The upstairs room was set out much as before, though this time no photographer and no subject graced the studio. Had I been in my right mind, I should have been nervous for he and I alone took our seats. The routine passed in a similar fashion. Two men this time were brought to seat, and the opiate-laced tea was prepared, but in place of before. I took it on myself to sup from the teat a little longer. The man pulled away, and I felt his desire for me to stop, but I was determined. My blood fizzing with mischief. Finally, he pulled away with a grunt and rubbed his sore-looking protuberance, his expression as sad and resigned as before. The darkness closed about me like a blanket, and the soft light played over the wall like lamplight against a wet and frightening night. The park scene reappeared, and I felt as if I knew every person before me. However, something had changed. There was something horrible about their faces. Their smiles were forced, and beneath were expressions of terror. Their actions were exaggerated, as though in a burlesque play. I felt my back turn rigid, and my toes retreat. Those eyes bore into me as would sharp needles. At last, the ordeal was over, though Matson knew by a look that all was not well. Did you end your drink when required? He asked. I assured him I had. What else could I do? He proffered the pills to me, and again I made my way home, this time on the omnibus to save pennies. That night shadows flickered from the corner of my eye, though of course all seemed normal when I looked. I took at first only two pills, but when something swallowed right by my ear, I took more. Still I was harassed until the weak light carried me to safety, and I stirred your desire. 
needing to remove all thoughts if only momentarily. At first, I delighted in the nearness of your flesh, the scent of pear's soap on your skin. Soon, though, I knew all was not well. It was as if I could feel something watching. Sure enough, when I glanced at the corner of the room, the shadow was thick and rolling unnaturally. I sobbed and scrabbled beneath you like a rodent until you moved aside, and I ran to the spare room ignoring your calls. How it tortured me to do that to you, Bertie. But I couldn't bear to see that thing again. I stared at the floor all night to avoid seeing tiny shadows drifting across the walls, and I covered my ears against their desperate cries. I wanted to weep and vomit all at once, and then the sun, the beautiful sun, rose, and I was alone. Matson seemed not altogether surprised when I barged my way into his shop that afternoon. Neither did he appear keen to ease my suffering. You were advised only to sup as much as was required. What could does this do me now? None at all. The smoke he exhaled made my eyes water. Young Master Clark, our resident photographer, found himself in much the same situation. Yes, I could have scratched his pompous eyes, torn his ridiculous pipe from his hands. The only thing to keep the beasts at bay is to partake of a different liquid. I furrowed my brow, certain he was attempting some trick. Once the line has been crossed, it's the only potion that can counteract the visions. If... He fixed me with a glare. Visions are all they are. The implication of his words prickled my flesh, and I grimly followed him to the other shop, where he led one of the pale men to the wooden stool. Worry not. He cut off my protestations, and pulled a small knife from his pocket, nicking the skin on the arm of the poor creature. It barely seemed to notice. He squeezed an even fouler-looking substance into an empty perfume bottle, pus yellow mixed with red. For this, I must ask one and six. One and six? For this? But it's a fraction of the amount we drank together, and I don't even know if it will- One would think, rather, that one would not wish to aggravate one's only hope. He grinned appallingly, exposing tobacco-brown teeth. I snatched the vial, and removed a shilling and six pennies from my purse, hating myself for being surprised that he should capitalize on my misfortune. I drank it that night and slept like a babe in arms. Though not before allowing you to satiate the craving I had deprived you of the night before, Bertie, I gripped you as if you were about to be torn from me, and you sensed how much I needed you. Afterwards, studying my face with such concern, perhaps you thought I was bearing our firstborn. It would have been the logical conclusion for my behaviour, I'm only sad that it was not so. However, I was now free to be the woman I wanted to be, and would avoid Matson and all low activities from now on. So, I was hopeful when, the next day, the partners of your firm invited us to Cremorne Gardens. 
all manner of London life danced to the band in the enormous grounds, from clerks to school children and shop girls to dandies. You kept such an eye on me, Bertie, as if I would fall from existence at a moment's notice. My attempts at small talk with Mr. Bradford while you spoke with your other colleague were some of the most painful experiences I have ever had. The sherry and lemonade he bought me turned my mouth into a syrupy canal, as I avoided children feral with drops of drink. My trouble began in earnest, when you and your cohort announced your desire to take in the operetta. How I wanted to tell Mr. Bradford not to wait with me, hateful little man. No sooner had you gone than he made rank overtures. Mr. Bradford, I said harshly, I think you may have mistaken me for one of the women lurking in the bushes. Oh, I think not, he said, for I have seen you more than once on Hollywell Street. Tell me what you bought there. Were you in any pictures? He rubbed his groin against my skirts, and I tried to free myself from his grip. Those around us averted their eyes, aware some unspeakable scene was playing out. Sir, I snapped, you are mistaken. I pulled myself free, and he grabbed my arm furiously. I turned my head, hoping I might see you returning, but I spotted instead a figure beside a tree, a horrible thing. Covered in shadow, its face a blur and limbs elongated. All I could make out clearly was a pair of gleaming eyes fixed on to me. Mr. Bradford noticed a change and released me immediately, glancing about as if checking for admonishers. I tore across a green expanse, not hearing or seeing the explosion of fireworks behind me. I ran my corset censoring my breath and blurring my vision. At last I reached the cabs, forcing myself to remain calm until I was safely inside the hansom. I ordered it directly to Hollywell Street and bade it wait while I marched to the door, my hands in fists. I heard voices from the other side, and when Matson answered, it seemed as though he was making a night of it with guests. It's very late, he snapped. I was trying to sleep. I was unreasonably angry that he should lie to me. For what did it matter? I answered him in measured tones, however, and he stepped aside to let me into the vestibule. That's when I removed the knife from my back. I will not be tricked into becoming a repeat customer. I want you to give me enough to rid my body of whatever is causing it to see these terrible things once and for all. I would never, he said his face a picture of wounded innocence. He was overdoing it and giving himself away further. I pressed the tip directly into his Adam's apple. Give me the potion. A drop of sweat fell from his forehead onto the collar of his shirt. I tried to remain cold, but I felt oddly sorry for him. That stuff will never get rid of it permanently. There has to be something you can do. I pushed the knife deeper watching the skin bent beneath it. I wondered if I could really do it, and whether I would like it. There is only one thing you can try. Well, his eyes turned to the floor. He shifted from foot to foot. Follow me, and please, 
His eyes stared directly into mine. You must trust me. He led me to a small study on the ground floor where I waited. The door closed against his riotous friends upstairs. I heard a brief exchange in which they tried to convince him to stay and drink brandy, though they quickly gave up, and Matson's footsteps once again creaked down the steps, followed by another's. I gripped the knife. He led one of the sad creatures into the study by the hand and sat him on a stool. I was confused. If the blood wouldn't work, why try again? My mind raged as Matson unbuttoned the man's trousers, shifted him, and pulled them down to his knees. You must think I'm a halfwit. I told you to trust me. And what a fool I was. Madam. Matson rubbed his eyes, which now had dark patches looming beneath them. You can take some of the blood with you, drink it, then find yourself back here in less than a day begging for release. Or... You can solve the issue finally, and be done. I have no wish to involve myself. I shall linger in the hallway. With that he was gone, and I was left with my pale companion. I got up, and hesitantly lifted his shirt, shrieking and stepping back. Monstrous! What lurked there was not a thing of man's but pulsing and writhing like a maggot. I weighed each option, but I had to be free of this. I could already feel your cool skin and smell the pomade of your hair. I knelt and took the rubbery flesh in my mouth. When I emerged, the tears fell to my cheeks. But my face in the mirror was impassive as a doll's. As before, the taste was the sweetest thing I had ever experienced. I shone from within with well-being, and Madsen actually had to talk me out of joining the party. I had done it. I had been victorious. Madsen already seemed to forget his earlier fear. A bizarre smile at the edges of his mouth. He checked on the creature, awe and wonder on his face. I wanted to laugh he looked so much like a proud father. I waved goodbye as I left in the cab. Your coolness when I arrived home was like a blanket that had been torn from me, but I was still so enveloped in my strange state that I didn't argue when I was ordered to the guest room. I lay all night on a cloud, listening as you left for Cornwall in the morning. I slept, and when I awoke I knew there was no return. The voices called to me from the wall, begging me for help. I cannot go outside, for I see the figure everywhere. I know now that it is one of the sad men, and he will feed on me, and I will be one of the shades in the park scene. Last night I saw him in the garden, just staring. I should have guessed that Matson wasn't trying to help. 
when I think of his face when I left that study. It's not pride I see, but half-crazed, dangerous piety. If only my senses hadn't been so dulled. If only I'd never heard of Hollywell Street. Martin's awe of those beasts is merciless, and his deeds for them have been my undoing, and of those already trapped in the wall. I will try to keep free of the creature, even if it means hiding in the wardrobe until you return. I love you, my darling. I pray I see you soon, and that you can help. Here the terrible missive ended. The constable and I stared at each other in silence, and I thought of all the times I could have held her to me and didn't. She can't have got far, said the constable, and left to organize a search. I ordered Hetty to go at once to the telegraph office to inform her family. I'm not holding out much hope, though, for I have since noticed in the corner of the room one of her shoes covered in a mysterious yellow ooze and a large black scorch mark upon the wall. Just a minute. Hello, kid. I mean, pretty. Oh, you're not... You're you're not Claude? No, no, I'm his roommate. Yes, I'm his roommate, that's it. Oh, I have a date with him tonight. For dinner. You must be Sarah. Well, do come in. I'm afraid he may be late. <laughs> yes, quite late indeed. Maybe I should just reschedule. Don't take this the wrong way, but you're rather... scary. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. It is? You could, of course, go, but I did just get a shipment of delicious wines from Wink, and there's a roast ready to come out of the oven. It would be a shame to let him, I mean, it go to waste. Wine from Wink? Oh, isn't Wink the company that makes exploring new wines fun and easy? With delicious wines based on your taste delivered right to your doorstep every month? Yes, here, I'll take your coat. As Claude would no doubt tell you if he was here, it is all too easy to go to the store and get sucked into trying to find the perfect wine. But it's so much easier to let Wink ship wine right to your door that's perfectly matched to your tastes. Like I do. Oh, that sounds complicated. How would they know what I like? Here you are. Thank you. Oh my, that is good. I'll tell you. I've known my share of soothsayers and fortune tellers, but none of them are as good as the mystical wine experts at Wink. You just take Wink's palate profile quiz on their website with simple questions like, how do you take your coffee? And how do you feel about blueberries? And somehow they're able to consult with the spirits in the great beyond or something like that and predict exactly which wines you'll love. Oh, that sounds great. And I like that they deliver right to your door. But what if I don't like a wine they pick for me? I hate to pay the shipping to my house and get stuck with something I don't like. Well, shipping is covered, and in the unlikely event that you don't like a bottle they send you, they'll replace it with a bottle you'll love. No questions asked. Sounds like I can't go wrong. Say, 
Can I have a refill? <laughs> I have to say, that was a delicious meal. And the wine was the best part. Yes, too bad Paul Claude never showed up. <laughs> Who? Uh, uh, no one. Say, now that we've finished dinner and... The wine is all gone. Maybe it's time for my dessert. And what would you like for dessert? Mm, something... Wicked. Oh, my! <laughs> <laughs> Even if you don't know a thing about wine, like the difference between unoaked and Finnish, or what a tannin is, Wink is the perfect wine club for you, because they do all the work. Matching wines to you based on your taste. Discover great wine today. Go to trywink.com slash wicked library and you'll get $20 off your first shipment. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash wicked library for $20 off. Trywink.com slash wicked library. <laughs> So today my guest is Madeline Swan, and we just listened to your story, Suckle His Poison, which I got to tell you first off, the title, fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. It, it lets you know Glad you're you in for a it. wild ride to begin with, right? <laughs> well, hopefully. Yeah. I like to think so, yeah. Yeah, and the uh, and the story is, um, it, it, it's one of those stories that it, it kind of grips you and makes you understand that you're in for some high strangeness you know you start with kind of this very uh slow descent into strangeness i'm glad to hear you say that because uh slow descent into strangeness is um a description that makes me very happy that's kind of what what i go for <laughs> yeah you know that's it the main the it, main thing it works really well because you know you, you kind of start grounded in reality and you're very slowly turning that knob towards strange and and you turn around and you look and you're like where am i uh, how did i get here you know and it, it kind of <laughs> almost happens without you realizing it oh good i'm pleased to hear you say that that was the that was the idea that was the main objective well you did it masterfully um <laughs> so so let's talk a little bit about the story what was what was it about this story that made it one that you wanted to tell was it kind of the characters that drove you in or or maybe all of it the uh, the initial idea came from uh, I really like those Victorian stories that kind of start with a letter, and it, they never seem to be the immediate story. They're always kind of removed. So mm -hmm. you hear about the action from uh, another person or through a letter or something like that, like um, Jekyll and Hyde or Dracula is all through letters, and you know. Um, so I, I wanted to use that structure and um, and the actual things themselves, I'm not, do you know, I'm not even 100% sure where that came from in my mind. I think it was just like um, while I was planning out some kind of Victorian story, I was wondering what could be 
at the end of this journey that this woman takes and it just seemed to it, it just seemed to end up there somehow so um you know god knows god knows where my, where my brain got that from but um yeah it just kind of came up in in notes that i was making so uh yeah yeah, it's it's interesting how that happens. You know, sometimes the story just kind of grabs you and takes you for a, a ride. And, you know, it's a lot of fun, I think, as the writer when that happens as well. You know, I mean, obviously that's what the reader is getting out of it. Um, but the fun part of writing a, a tale like that is whenever you get to go kind of on that same journey as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I wanted to give it a kind of gothic feel and I wanted to, it, but I wanted it to be much weirder you know, to kind of go next level weird <laughs> right? than than something like Jekyll and Hyde or, or something like that, which would have been very weird for the time, but I wanted to push it further. You know, and it's one of the things that I've I've noticed in, in the, the exposure that I've had to your work, uh, working with you before with some of the other shorter stories for uh, the previous season, you, you have a very strong female character here uh, who, you know, it's it's kind of nice that she comes into this with, kind of her own force, her own power. She she knows what she's doing. Um, she has a direction in mind. But just like all of us, she ends up in a situation that she really didn't expect, that she really couldn't control. And uh, it's it's a little more than she... She got more than what she was bargaining for, I think. Yeah. It was kind of... She wants to experience all these things, um, which is contrary to... Uh, the kind of things that Victorian women are supposed to be interested in. But instead of just going the perhaps, well, I guess I don't know about safer route with um, an opium den or something like that. She, she has to kind of, she, she kind of wants to um, experience uh, something even, you know, darker. Right. Uh, And that's kind of where, that's kind of where it veers off into uh, she ends up, over her head but yeah I, I tend to want to write female characters um and and that's that's usually where I end up yeah yeah it's it's nice to to see that you know we've kind of had that over the last so many years in in horror fiction that we we're moving away from the damsel in distress type of thing I mean even though she does end up in a situation where she's she's in over her head um you know you can you can really tell that she has this confidence about her and she's uh, she knows what she's doing, even though she ends up, like I said, over her head. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, she makes an error at a certain point um, where she could have turned back, but um, she could, you know, if she hadn't gone down there, she could handle herself, you know. I think she would she would be okay in most other situations. Right. Yeah. So for you, what was your biggest struggle with this story? Oh, I think it was the ending. I I did about three or four different attempts and um, each one didn't feel quite right. And then I submitted it to, I can't remember, it was a really big uh, anthology, which I knew it would not get into because mm. it was kind of, uh, you know, one of, one of the main ones. But uh, they gave me... Um, really good feedback and I kind of used that feedback and um I submitted it to Dark Lane Anthology Volume 5 and they really liked it so 
Wonderful. I guess, I guess it worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great piece from start to finish. How many, how many drafts did it take you to kind of get it into its current form? Uh, probably, a, probably about four, I think, maybe. Yeah, about four. And is that usually typical for you? Or, I mean, the, the things usually come pretty easy, or do you usually struggle more, or is this about the normal? There are some that um, it kind of comes out almost immediately, but there are others where it, it like that, where it, it takes a little bit more work, you know? Right. right. Um, like I, I did one for the other stories podcast and um, that kind of took a little bit more work. And yet uh, some others is sort of almost from first draft that it just needs a lot of, you know, some tidying. Yeah. So yeah, it depends. Now let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the character that contains this, uh, this special elixir. I don't know how, if that's the right term for it, but um, how do you see this care? I mean, that particular character, I mean, is that uh, just somebody that has an aberration or do you think in your mind, is this like a, a race or, you know, a different type of subhuman type of race or, you know, where, where did you, where did your mind go with that? If you were going to expand on that story? Well, I, I guess um, it could, just as easily be something from a different dimension or something from uh -huh. an, another planet or you know something summoned from below it it could e it could equally be any of those things i think right or some kind of weird i don't know i got kind of the I other dimension not. feel from it because you know whenever we talked yeah. about the um the, the the picture that was changing and she was actually seeing things moving and it kind of once she once she took the the poison or the medicine or whatever you want to call it, she got to this mm. point where reality had shifted and she was kind of seeing more than what she had before. And I, I always like stories that kind of have that element because I think that we live in a very closed, very proper society. And there are a lot of times other things going on behind the scenes that we don't want to see, don't notice. And it's always fun when you have a story that kind of is like, well, let's brush a little bit of the curtain away and, and give you yeah. a larger look into reality. And it's, you know, I think that the the terror truly in the story is more in her seeing things for what maybe they really are for the first time. Yeah. I mean, even, even scientifically, like my fiance will talk to me about particles and things like that. And the idea that what you're seeing isn't necessarily what that thing really is it's actually particles and these and atoms and things like that i can't think about that too much it freaks me out <laughs> right like the idea that real you know reality isn't really reality is bizarre <laughs> yeah i mean because you know you think about the fact that we've kind of evolved to have the five senses that we rely upon but what other things are out there that our senses aren't able to pick up on and with the introduction of this this drug into her system, maybe it's kind of breaking down some of those barriers for her. And I think that truly is is where it becomes the high strangeness, the discomfort. There's some real terror in there. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the idea. Yeah, definitely. So when you were writing the story, was there anything that that kind of surprised you from the start to the finish? You know, the transformation between the original kernel of the idea to the actual uh full story whenever it became fully executed 
Well, I think the the thing that surprised me was I I kind of I wanted to I was working on that last step of um uh of the poison that she drank from the creature and I was kind of wasn't sure I didn't know I was going to go as far as I went, you know, like when the last thing that she has to do. Right. And um I that actually came into it on the, the last draft that wasn't in it originally. And once I'd written that bit, I thought, yeah, that makes sense now. That makes sense to me now. So, um, yeah, that, that came later. And uh, it was about um, I didn't know about how far I was going to push it. And so that's that was the surprise. Yeah. You know, and and you mentioned earlier, you know, Jekyll and Hyde and Victorian fiction. And I think that really that for me is kind of what sells this as a very Victorian piece, even though you probably wouldn't find a Victorian author writing that far. That's really the underlying theme of a lot of those stories like Dracula and uh, Jekyll and Hyde. It's the the repression of the sexual desires and, you know, everything's prim and proper on the surface. But we all have these these darker thoughts underneath that. Um, you know, mm. we continue to repress. And it's one of the things that I've always found interesting about those stories from that time is really, it feels to me like a lot of those stories are, are about the repression of, you know, sexual urges yeah. and murder and darker thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Dracula, Jekyll and Hyde, um, uh, any, you know, most of the Gothic novels are about sexual repression and um, even just... Uh, the desire to just go out and have fun and not even necessarily sexual, you know, that right. you have to, I had to act in a very um, upright manner, you know, prim and proper, but, um, uh, and I, you know, to an extent we still kind of do that. Um, Absolutely. We still feel as if we have to, you know, put on a kind of front when really you just want to maybe go crazy. So um, yeah, I think it's, it's still, uh, a thing that some people struggle with, but yeah, that's that's definitely a, a theme that fascinates me about Gothic literature. Yes, absolutely. So, as a writer of of strange fiction, of speculative fiction, horror, what what brings you and what attracts you to that that genre, or those genres, I should say? Um, I think it's been kind of a a slow descent into <laughs> madness no um i i i knew that i wanted to write more experimental stuff from when i was very young um i remember i remember being about 16 and trying to write something weird but i didn't n- really know anything about weird fiction and uh it kind of was a, quite silly um and then i started reading um i read William Burroughs and um, Clockwork Orange and things like that when I was about 17. And I was like, yeah, that's that's something I'm interested in. And then I kind of got read Stranger and Stranger Things. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of, it, it's, it's always been an interest of mine, but it's been like um, I, you know, needed more and more strangeness, I think. Hmm. Yeah, and it, you know it's 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 interesting because you can tackle a lot of very complex topics um, th- through that venue. You know, by going for 
the things that are very strange. There's there's a lot of subtext to the stories, I think, even in the very short stories. Yeah, I mean, you can you can really sort of look at the subconscious and um, I think, um, you know, if there's uh, like particular fears or something that you fixate on, you can look at it in quite a nightmarish way. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have any specific routines or rituals that you use to kind of get you in the right mindset when you're writing? Well, I do. I like going in public with um, like there's a pub that I'll write in um, and I'll drink a lot of caffeine and, and listen in to other people's conversations. Um, ah, very good. And, uh, and write, you know, um, but also me and my friend, my friends here at the minute, um, we'll organize a, like say a week where we'll, um, he'll work on his artwork for an exhibition that he's got coming up or something. And then I'll um, try and get a, a book finished or something like that. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of need to say to myself, right in this time, I will do this many words and, you know, but um, you know, I, I like going into the pub to write. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's always, like come yeah. People watching and 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 kind of eavesdropping on conversations, you get some really great ideas and some great dialogue that way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I am quite nosy as well, so <laughs> yeah, I like listening to people. That's we call that observant uh in observant, in, in the art world. Yeah. That's right. Yes, you're observant. <laughs> everything is research. You can kind of play everything off as research, like if if I'm watching like really lame TV or something. It's research, you know. Right. I mean, I don't know. I don't remember where I first read it, but one of the things that that always stuck with me is that when you create art, what your job is is to take reality and and hold that mirror back up to society and say, okay, this is what you really look like. Because you know, it goes back to the the, the first thing we were talking about, where there's all this subtext occurring all the time, and most of us just kind of ignore it. And whenever you really pay attention, there's a much larger story and a much bigger picture there to be seen. Yeah. I mean, uh, something that always interested me is um, I read an interview with David Lynch where he was talking about um, with Twin Peaks and, and so on. There's always the surface story and then all the Freudian stuff underneath it. Um and Aikman was, uh, Robert Aikman was very Freudian as well. Oh, yeah. It's kind of, if you kind of look at the things that happen in a Robert Aikman story, um, it it doesn't seem like an awful lot's going on. Um, like Ravison is one of my favourites by him. It's kind of, he just goes to this uh, older lady's house uh, to meet some man that he, that is someone that he knew. And she makes him try on all of these women's clothes, or, or no, no, she she shows him these women's clothes, and um, and it's really Freudian, but not a lot happens. But there's something quite unsettling about it. So yeah, yeah, absolutely, because I, you know, your reader picks up on that subtext and the underlying story, and and without really acknowledging, I think that's where the discomfort comes from. Absolutely, yeah. Lynch yeah, is definitely. Lynch is a master at that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I love Robert Aikman. I'm a fan. Yeah, definitely. So 
Is there a uh, a book or a story that you've read or anything that you've been exposed to? It could be film as well that kind of changed you, the way that you looked at the world or your place in it. Ooh, um, well, I do think that Robert Aikman is a good example because when I when I first read his stories, I was expecting ghost stories, and they're not. Mm-hmm. They're well, they are just unexplainable. So they, they are quite a, um, a influence. Um, but I have a really clear memory of when I was at college or uh, university and uh, I was, I don't know, like 18, 19. Um, I read a Haruki Murakami short story collection. And oh, okay. it was so weird and like nothing I'd read before that I really didn't like it at first, but then I couldn't stop thinking about it and I read it again. And um, I think that was, that was one of the things that set me off on the weird path. I mean, I was on the, on the path already, but it was just another rung. <laughs> kind of like uh, an, an additional confirmation that you were headed down the right path, huh? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. So, Horror is one of the things like we we started to talk about earlier and you talked about kind of some of the discomfort with, you know, um, being close to other people and, and, you know, affection between people that you don't really know that well. Some people are really good at that, by the way, where they're just like, oh, I just want to give you a big hug. No, I don't know you. Please stand back a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And it's it's interesting because it's it's one of the questions that I, I always like to ask because horror and what causes us discomfort is also very personal. Um, what does a good story have to do to scare you? Do you remember maybe a story or a movie or, or something that really got under your skin and scared you? And you're like, yeah, this is the stuff that, that makes me uncomfortable. I think if it's going to scare me, it needs to have um, like it needs to be really subtle, I think, actually, which might not be what I do, but um, to to scare me, it has to be, it has to have like a kind of creeping dread. Um, I don't know if you saw Lake Mungo, um, but that scared the crap out of me. <laughs> it really did. Um, I thought it was really spooky and um, it's, very, it's very subtle and... Um, yeah, I like kind of supernatural spooky things, but not uh, jump scares, you know, things like that. They don't, like, I find it kind of cheap, mm-hmm. um, but um, something like that. Or the uh, Clive Barker short story in that collection, um, Gutted Beautiful Horror Stories or something, um, That I found that quite creepy. Um and weirdly enough, The Little Stranger by Sarah Waters. I think maybe because I wasn't expecting it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was, I found that quite spooky. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I kind of like, I mean, not that uh, other types of horror can't be fun. And if it's done well, yeah. that it can't be effective. But yeah, it's exactly. it's kind of that personal, that personal thing. And the slow underlying dread, the... Yeah. Uh, the creepiness, the the factor where you just you're continually starting to feel more and more uncomfortable as things go along and things get stranger mm. and stranger. A lot like, uh, you know, the story that we're talking about today, your story, Suckle is Poison. 
it kind of works exactly like that. It's it's this slow descent, and it goes in directions and places where you're not expecting. And that just that high strangeness in in stories always gets me. It, that's what I kind of find the most terrifying. Oh, that makes me all warm in my heart. Thank you. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> that makes welcome. me happy. <laughs> Very good. Um, so. Obviously, you do other stuff. You have a lot of other work out there. Uh, where is a good place for people that were a fan of your work today to find more of your work? Well, uh, my website is a good place to go, madeleineswan.com, uh, M-A-D-E-L-E-I-N-E, swan with two Ns. Um, I'm very active on Twitter and YouTube. Um, I've got my personal channel where I talk about books that I like and writing and stuff like that. But I've also got a second channel where I read uh, weird things, but not, I don't know, like um, not really good weird things, although that sounds horrible. Uh, I mean, like <laughs> I've read a fan fiction not long ago, which is just balmy, and I read a, a Chuck Tingle story. <laughs> oh, Chuck um, Tingle! So, oh, yeah, yeah, Chuck Tingle, good old Chuck. Yeah, exactly. For, for those I mean, for those like you and I who are not initiated in Chuck Tingle, why don't you give a quick description of of uh, what you can expect from Chuck's work? Well, he writes gay erotica, but it'll be something like pounded in the butt by my own butt. <laughs> Or pounded in the butt by my book, pounded in the butt, or um, pounded the by weird, yeah, like the weirdest <laughs> t- possible titles that you can possibly think of. Exactly. And, and um, yeah, it's. <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a fan of Chuck. I, I oh, think yeah. he's really funny. He is, funny. and um, I think he he's he's really good at satire. Um, the one that I've uh, read on my uh, second channel the weirdest stream uh no the weirdest fiction it's called streams um the one that i read on there is uh oh god it's got a really long title it's something like pounded in the butt by my irrational bigoted fear of unicorns who are no humans who are born as unicorns um who have to use the human restroom or something like that i don't know but yeah. it's like a comment on you know the whole bathroom issue, and um, it's so it's it's a good satire. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean titles like Space Raptor Butt Invasion, Helicopter Man Pounds <laughs> Dinosaur, uh, Buttception, a butt within a butt within a butt. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. good yeah, stuff. Good. And uh, the the uh, fan fiction that I read um, last week is um, oh, it was some weird thing from the far corners of the internet which was uh, a crossover of Courage the Cowardly Dog, um, the Golden Girls, and the Lion King. So it's kind of like I, I stick to more sort of weird, fun <laughs> yeah. stuff on that channel. So, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you definitely have a great sense of humor. If, if people go back and listen to um, the last time you were on the show where we did three of your Bizarro stories, uh, they'll, they'll get a good feel for your sense of humor, and, and uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I try. <laughs> Absolutely. So what are you working on right now? What what's uh what's taking up your time that uh we can expect to see in the future? Well, um I'm I'm currently working on um another book which is like a middle grade children's book. Um I've also got 
in June, um, I've got an, an Eraserhead Press novella coming out where it's kind of short stories, but they're all kind of linked. And oh, it's very nice. A fortune box. Um, I'm also going to be in issue one of the Clash magazine. You can oh, very find nice. Yeah, yeah, yesclash.com. Go there, you'll find it. Um, I'm in something called Twisted 50, Volume 2, um, which is, I think, 50 weird short stories, like flash fictions. Um, I'll be on the Gallery of Curiosities podcast. Um, yeah, and just go to my website to find anything else. Excellent. Yeah, so you're not busy at all then, is what you're saying, right? <laughs> yeah, not at all. Not well, at I just all. sit around. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do appreciate you taking so much time to talk. Um, folks probably don't know this, but you know you're well. Maybe they do. You're in London. I'm in Pittsburgh. Um, it's there's there's a five hour difference. We had a little bit of a disconnect today, so it's later than than I thought it was going to yeah. be for you when we started talking. Uh, so I don't want to keep you up all night because what it's almost ten thirty there. Yeah, yeah, twenty five past ten. Yeah, yeah. We're supposed to start this at nine. We didn't start until. Well past that. So I apologize, but I do appreciate you taking the time. And, you know, it was really nice to finally get a chance to talk to you and talk about your story. And we'll definitely have to have you back on again. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Cheers. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library, or you can also do that at our website if you like. You can be a part of keeping the show coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. The Wicked Library is proud to have Booth Junkie as one of our Season 8 partners. Booth Junkie is a YouTube channel dedicated to the tech of at-home professional voiceover created by the very talented Mike Delgadio. If you've ever been interested in getting into voiceover, seeing what goes into voice work, or just can't get enough of Mike's voice, it's a great channel to watch. You can find the channel by going to boothjunkie.com. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information on today's episode, can be found at thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead. Leave the lights on. It makes it easier to uh, suckle his poison.